Welcome everyone to the Rocky Talk podcast, the Rockefeller Center's podcast. Um, my name is Blake McGill and I'm a member of the class of 2022 here at Dartmouth College. And today I'm, I have the pleasure to be joined by Tina Neto. Um, she was appointed as an Associate Justice to the New Hampshire Supreme Court in 1996 and in 2011 was appointed Chief Justice of the Superior Court. Justice Neto is currently a board member of the New England Association of Drug Court Professionals and New Futures, a nonprofit organization that works to reduce substance use disorder. She's also a faculty member of the National Association of Drug Court Professionals. In June 2020, she was appointed as an inaugural member of the National Council on Criminal Justice and served as a member of the COVID-19 Task Force. We are lucky here at Dartmouth because Justice Neto is joining us as the 2021 Perkins Bass Distinguished Visitor at the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy. Thank you so much for joining us, Justice Neto. Yeah, it's just a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Of course. Um, So the topic of your talk that you gave at the Rockefeller Center and also a lot of the work that you've been doing has been focused on drug and mental health courts. And so just for our listeners at home, I would really love for you to just start by explaining what is a drug court for those people who may not know. Sure. It can be really counterintuitive because, first of all, I find when I talk with legislators, they think it's actually a whole different building. And really, it's not. It's just a different way of managing offenders who end up with felony charges that are usually related to their substance use disorder or mental health issues. So instead of sending those folks to prison for two years or to the House of Corrections for a year, we decide that we give them an opportunity for treatment. So they'll spend a year and a half or two years in the drug court treatment program, which means they they do a lot. They actually have to go to treatment three days a week, three hours a day, they are subject to random drug testing. They, ch- they have to appear in court once a week. They have a probation officer that checks in with them once a week and a case manager that checks in with them once a week. So they are highly supervised. And the idea is to get them into treatment that teaches them the skills they need to battle substance use disorder and to be a productive member of society. So they can do that while they're in the community, practicing those techniques, and when they fail at the practice, they can come back and readjust in treatment. So I was really motivated by the drug court model because I, as a superior court judge, would see the same offenders coming through the courtroom over and over and over again. And what we would do is just continue to escalate the sanctions until they were headed to state prison, and we really wouldn't see a change in their behavior. So the drug court is really a, an evidence-based model. It's been studied and tested. And it's so much more effective at changing behavior and keeping the public safe than if we simply put people in jail or prison. Amazing. And obviously, your role is, as the Chief Justice of the New Hampshire Superior Court is very locally based. Um, so, can, so can you kind of describe how drug court has worked in New Hampshire? Is it available throughout the state? Um, is it county based? Great question. It started off many years ago, 15, 20 years ago, in one or two counties. And a at that level, those counties funded the drug courts. And then when I became chief, I encouraged a couple of other judges on on the Superior Court to start a drug court in the county where they sit, and they received federal funding as sort of a startup mechanism to begin drug court. And then in 2016, I worked with a couple of senators at the state level to obtain statewide funding so that we could have a drug court in every county. So as we sit here today, we have 10 
counties in the state. One county has two locations because it's so large, Hillsborough County. So we have 11 felony courts and 11 county locations, and we have 10 drug courts operating right now. The only county where we don't have a drug court is Sullivan County. And, you know, getting a drug court up and running is a challenge because you need to get a lot of stakeholders on board. You need to get a lot of buy-in from the community. You need to get buy-in from law enforcement, from the corrections officials, from the county attorney. And it, it can be challenging depending on the culture of a particular county. So we're still working on Sullivan County, but at least we have a drug court operating in all of the other locations across the state. And we serve about, I would say, if you take a snapshot, because people come into drug court, they graduate sort of on a, a rolling process. So if you take a snapshot, we probably have about 600 people at any given time statewide who are attending a drug court program. Amazing. Um, and then can you speak to the like whether or not there are circumstances that may make um, certain people who have gone through the drug court more or less likely to be successful? That is a really great question. It's always what everybody asks me. So why should we invest in drug court? And what I can tell you from the studies that have been conducted is that when somebody with a similar profile as someone who's going through drug court goes to jail or prison for a year or two, their likelihood of reoffending when they're released is about 70%. Somebody who graduates from drug court, so the same profile, someone with a felony criminal record, a significant substance use disorder, when they graduate from drug court, they are likely to reoffend at a rate of maybe 25 or 30%. So it's significantly lower. And even for those people, because there are some who can't get through the rigors of drug court and they end up being terminated, even for those people, they, they reoffend at a rate of 40%. So we know that there's something about the cognitive behavioral therapy, the group treatment, the constant application of incentives for doing well and sanctions for not doing well that that process actually results in people being able to manage their own behavior and to be able to internalize the techniques and to stop reoffending. Um, and you've obviously given evidence of the statistical success of drug court. Um, are there any anecdotes that you can tell from your time overseeing drug court where you were like, this person really succeeded as a consequence of being yeah. through the program and they may not have had they been through the traditional criminal justice system? Yes, there are so many anecdotes. I wish I could tell you all of them. And if anyone ever wants to come to a drug court graduation, they are open courtroom sessions. I would encourage that. But there are many that stick out in my mind. There's one woman who had a pretty lengthy criminal record and it involved forgeries, theft, credit card fraud, possession of controlled drugs, those kinds of things. And she had cycled through in and out of the system. She'd been on probation. She'd been in and out of jail. She tried a bunch of treatment programs that didn't work. And she finally found her way into drug court. And the, the ultimate charge that got her there was a possession charge. She and her boyfriend were using drugs together, as happens often, and he began to overdose. So she did the right thing and called 911. But while she waited for the ambulance to get there, she removed the needle from his arm and she finished the heroin herself which says a lot about how incredibly strong substance use disorder can be, how much it damages the brain. And she, she struggled in drug court, as a lot of people do. She finally made it through, and she, she began to have fewer and farther days between relapses, and she is still doing well. This was five years ago. She got her daughter back. She's working. She has a home, and she 
said at her drug court graduation that she never, ever thought she'd be able to manage holding a job for more than a couple of weeks. She says she feels like she's contributing because she's actually paying income taxes for the first time in her life. And you can see with a case like that, that we have a lot of sort of collateral consequences that we benefit from. So her daughter's not in foster care. The state isn't spending money taking care of her daughter. Uh, this woman was not no longer using the emergency rooms every time she had an overdose scare. Um, so we save money on many levels, but probably most importantly and most rewarding is to see how much the folks that come through drug court really want to succeed. And it, it helps us to stop thinking about them as criminals and to remember that they have struggled through life. A lot of them started using drugs with their own parents. Many of them had trauma in their lives. Many have financial and housing instability. And for those folks to be able to make the changes it takes to get through to a graduation and have that recovery sustained is so rewarding. Absolutely. And the CDC reported in 2017 that deaths of despair accounted for 45.8 out of every 100,000 American deaths. Um, that was like 180% increase from 2000. And over the last year, um, there's been an even further market increase as a consequence of the stress of COVID, um, people losing their jobs, financial ruin, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's safe to say that the opioid crisis is far from over and some would argue probably worsening. So I'm curious what you think the future of drug court is and if these continued deaths of despair and increased um, opioid use, misuse, overuse continues to be a problem in the, uh, the U.S., what you really see the future of drug court being as perhaps a solution and an antidote to some of these problems. Yes. And you, you describe a really complicated set of circumstances. And you're right. COVID was very challenging even for the drug court programs because we had to resort to um, online sort of platforms for a while. And now we're able to meet with people in treatment and court in person. So what I would say to that is that you are right. The opioid epidemic is far from over. And what people need to understand is that drug court targets a very small population. It targets people who are at high risk for reoffending and have criminal justice records, people who have a substantial substance use disorder and have been using for quite a long time. So drug courts really help those folks. I think as a community, we need to think more broadly about people who are struggling with substance use disorder, but may not be involved in the criminal justice system, or they may not be at risk for reoffending, or they may not be heading to state prison. How can we help those folks as well? And we need to be bold and unafraid and start looking at things like harm reduction. There are proven models in other countries where there are safe places for people to consume drugs. It sounds really counterintuitive, but it's a a clinical hospital setting with experienced staff who can make sure people are safe. And the studies show that you actually are more successful at retaining those folks in treatment if you give them a safe, non-judgmental place to, to start. So I'm hoping that we can broaden our, our scope of, of um, relief for these people to include ideas like, like safe consumption sites. Yes, and another thing that's been in the news um, is that many American cities are experiencing a spike in violent crime um, and gun violence, and some are asserting, perhaps for political purposes, that it's actually the consequence of lenient district attorneys and those who are advocates of criminal justice reform um, that are contributing to the spike. I'm wondering if you have any response to those who say that criminal justice reform is actually leading to spikes in violent crime, um, and if drug court might be able to abate some of the problems. Right. 
Well, that is another tough question. And I really think it depends on the region that we're talking about. I think in a lot of circumstances, the fact that that we have spent so much time trying to fight the war on drugs, um, that it's hard to recognize that black market is really what contributes to the violence in our country. And so we need to do something about the international problem of, of the sale of drugs and the transport and the manufacture of drugs. So that's a whole nother issue. I, I do think that drug courts have been tested um, over the past 20 years. And even with someone who's considered a violent offender, if their offenses are, are as a result of their substance use disorder, drug court can be as effective for those offenders as well. Now, there has to be an appetite for that in the communities, and we have to balance public safety. There are, there are some violent offenders who simply belong in state prison. I do not think at all that criminal justice reform causes an increase in violent offense. I think what causes an increase is what you've described, financial insecurity, homelessness, lack of adequate resources. So I think the more that we engage in criminal justice reform, the more we'll be able to focus on that small percent of violent offenders and making sure they're the ones that are separated from society. Amazing. Um, and if there are people who have listened to your talk at the Rockefeller Center and are now listening to this podcast episode, and they're thinking, why does my state or county not have a drug court? Um, are there ways for them to kind of advocate to have one put into their um, town or their county or their state? Yes, I would say I'm always willing to go to any Rotary Club or any even Chamber of Commerce and talk about drug courts. I've done that for many years. So I'm happy to help myself in, in communities where people identify the need. I think reaching out to legislators, county commissioners, and um, in your states is very important. And also at the federal level, I know that Senators Shaheen and Hassan have been very supportive of drug courts. They've ensured that there's been available federal funding for them. But I, I also think that uh, that the average person out in the community can do a lot for these reforms if they educate themselves about it, spend some time engaging in the community and reaching out to people who know about it to educate their communities. And all of us who are active in drug court are willing to participate in that process. Amazing. And then my final question, I want to kind of move away from drug court a little bit and talk about some of your other experiences. So um, over the past year, you were a member of the inaugural uh, team of the Council on Criminal Justice, and you worked with people across the political spectrum. Um, notable other members of the team were Kim Fox, Van Jones, Grover Norquist, Mike Lee. I'm not necessarily sure in what capacity you were active and interacting with all of these different people. But I think what was interesting to me to read down that list was the vast array of people across the political spectrum who are also advocates of criminal justice reform. So I was curious if any of your experience obviously advocating for things like drug and mental health courts um, and other examples of criminal justice reform, what do you think the future of political advocacy is? And do you think there's kind of an appetite for it um, on both sides of the political aisle? Yes, I absolutely do. And what was exciting about the Criminal Justice Council, and, and in particular, the COVID task force, was that bipartisan approach. The co-chairs were former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez and Loretta Lynch. So you had both Republican and Democratic attorneys general. And to watch them work together was so inspiring. It, they were both able to say, what does the science tell us? What does the evidence tell us? How can we communicate that well to our constituencies? And to do it together, both as a Democrat and Republican, I think is the way that we make meaningful change in our communities. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that organizations like the Council on Criminal Justice 
and the National Association of Drug Court Professionals can continue with that important tradition of bipartisan collaboration. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Chief Justice Neto, for joining us on the Rocky Talk podcast. We are so excited to have you as the 21 Perkins Basque Distinguished Visitor here at Dartmouth College. I hope that I get to see you in the classroom and interact with you on campus when things uh, become a little bit more open. Um, So thank you again. And thank you to all of you guys at home who have tuned in to this episode of the Rocky Talk podcast. Until next time. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Hemlock. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. If you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.